You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So we've been talking about me potentially getting a lathe. Yeah, a couple episodes ago. Yeah, and I'm going to slow pedal that one. What happened? Just nothing happened. Nothing happened. And that is, I am consciously trying to avoid getting focused on the new shiny thing Mm. because there's a lot of other stuff that's low-hanging fruit still in the company that's right in front of my face that if I throw myself headlong into shopping around for a new machine and specking out all the tooling and all this, I could easily spend a month or more of my time down a rabbit hole, which may be profitable and fruitful in the long term, but is going to come at the immediate cost of things that are currently on my plate that need to get finished, getting pushed to the middle burner, to the back burner, and then off the back of the stove and down into the gap by the wall. Yep. So at this point, the, pr- the idea is very much alive. Okay. I am watching YouTube content and reading up on some lathes, making sure I understand terminology, which axes are called which, and various kinds of different turrets and subspindles and collets and chucks and all the kinds of stuff that a mill guy mm-hmm. has to wrap his sorry little brain around when it comes to lathe time. But I'm not in a rush, and I don't have work that I either have to get it right now or lose it. And so I'm not going to artificially constrain myself with pressure and even the financial pressure of, oh, if you buy it by the end of December, you can expense it this year. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I've done that for years. (laughs) It makes total sense to say, I'm going to buy this in March, no matter what. Sure. And if I've got the money to buy it in December, go ahead and buy it in December and expense it. Yeah. Right. But certainly rushing the decision about what to buy. Mm Yep. To fit it into this fiscal year is a bad idea. Right. Yeah. So I'm really interested in a dual spindle live tool, Y-axis lathe, a multifunction, very capable thing that can do lots of cool stuff. It seems like if we're going to invest in a lathe, investing in a really simple little two-axis lathe would be something that very quickly we would encounter projects that we wanted to take on. Mm-hmm for which we were not able to tool that machine up. Yeah, yeah. And if I had a dedicated, really, really simple part, where I'm like, okay, over the next five years, we're going to make 60,000 of this part and it only requires two axes. It's got center drilling and side turning and then ID threading and then we're done. Then maybe that laser would make sense. But I want to find things that unlock my creativity and that takes time because I am not a lathe guy. Mm-hmm. And spending time, my new machinist, Chris, has a bunch of experience doing lathe and also wire and sinker EDM. He knows a lot of things that I've never done before. And I can try to drink from a fire hose as much as I want, but there is a rate of saturation beyond which I simply can't retain things. Mm. And a lot of ideas take time to percolate. I have to be able to think about them watch some videos about them, listen to discussions about them, look at some of the specs, make sure I understand things, ask questions, and then chew on it for a while. Mm -hmm. 
And that is a process that I can't short circuit by trying to go harder at it. Well, historically, how long is that process? Well, that really depends. Like right now, I have two things. I've got potential lathe in the future, and I've got fourth axis work holding on our R650. Between those two things, I have an immediately actionable project that is an internal part that I want to make that's going to require fourth axis. And the question of how do we want to work hold that on the fourth axis? Do we need a tailstock? Do we want to have a Lang subplate? Do we want the fourth axis removable from that machine? How often are we going to change it over? Do we need to put a fourth on each table on the 650? Or does it make sense to put a fourth on one side and leave the other side open for whatever other standard setups we want to mess around with? Prototyping, vices, MPS or pro pallet bases, whatever we want. And so between those two things, one is much lower cost. Putting a fourth axis on a mill that I already own free and clear is a no-brainer. It's like, yes, sure. yeah. this machine is available for this job. It's got the table size to run this fourth axis. And if I make smart decisions about how I set the fourth axis up now, I leave a lot of options open for myself to adapt that fourth axis to other particular projects and, and parts in the future, mm -hmm. which is why we're thinking probably, I really like the idea that you've done before of having a fourth axis on a winch where you can just take it off the table and winch it up into the corner of the machine and leave it there. That's yeah. elegant, but it doesn't seem like it's going to work on the Brother R-series machines because you have to plumb all your wiring through the center of the table. It's not oh. off the edge of the table, so you can't hoist the whole fourth up and move it out of the way. Yeah. There's space inside the enclosure for the fourth. Right. There's room to hoist it, but we would have to devise an entire system of coolant-proof, quick disconnects that could then be capped and sealed Mm -hmm. And there are ways to do that. We could make a bulkhead box. There's a bunch of things we could do if that was a really high priority for us. But I think probably the better play is rather than commit ourselves to developing a removable fourth setup, we just put a fourth on one side and leave the, the second table open. Yeah. So if we need to do something that would have otherwise required the fourth to leave, we just change tables and set it up there. Now, mm -hmm. that is giving away this, the primary advantage of the R-series machine, which is outboard loading while the machine's in cycle. But we're not looking at taking on super high volume production parts immediately where that is the single critical factor that's going to make the difference between making money and not. Mm -hmm. So for us, the flexibility of being able to have the fourth running production parts while we are running something completely different, palletized or vice-based or whatever we do on the other table, it isn't the case that in order to run the fourth efficiently, we have to run the fourth continuously. We can load the fourth, send it in, run all four sides, be loading something else up, send that in, and it runs for an hour while we reload the fourth and then queue it up. And so we can we could get the machine running continuously on a mix yep. of parts yes. without having to put a fourth on both tables. Yeah, I that, love that. That preserves the maximum flexibility. Now, it doesn't work if you have no available mix. If this week you need 6,000 of only the parts that run on the fourth, you're stuck. Yeah. But don't, we can also leave the fourth in place and make the things that mount on the face of the fourth interchangeable. There you so go. So the idea of, putting a Lang subplate in, putting a rotovice on that, 
And if we need to put something else on, we leave the fourth in place and we hoist the roto vice. Yeah. Or just take it out and set it down. Yeah. If we'll put and put something else on. We could have multiple quick change holding options with the fourth always staying in the same place mm -hmm. and be able to have that versatility, but still have a whole other table for anything else we wanted, whether See, that I was zero ops or a second ops of fourth parts or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I like that approach because to complete the logic or just explain our thought process, when we used that winch to get the rotary up and into the corner, so there's two things to rotary removals. Obviously, there's the removal, physical removal, but then there's also the digital removal. And you can really, you can wreck your machine or at least a drive if you unplug or plug in a, a rotary cable and it is not turned off, at least on the hoses. So you have to go through and digitally deactivate it, cuts the power to it. You turn off the power, you remove cables, you turn it back on. That's how that works. I didn't want to run that risk. So our fourth axis, just we winched it to the top, still plugged in. You home the machine, you look up there and there's a little rotary in the top right corner of the machine, homing itself. Away. Yeah. <laughs> so that was it. It was just, we do not want to wreck this machine. We don't want to have the, a crash because of someone didn't follow process or just spaced out. Because I've almost done that where I've said, okay, good. I deactivated the, the rotary. Then I go to the back to start to unplug cables, go, oh my gosh, you have to do this with the power off. You have to cold reboot it or hot reboot. I don't know. So that was the first thing. The other thing that came to mind when you were talking about all that stuff was that I'm trying to be a voice in the wilderness that advocates that every machine should have a fourth axis. Because although you're adding, you're going from three axes to four, so you're going up by 25% right there. You don't get 25% more productivity out of it. It's, well, like the road device, we say, yeah, you, you have more access to other faces. And so you're cutting out entire setups. It, I don't know. I'm just hyper aware of not wanting to sound too salesy, but it really is like, I'll never buy another just straight three axis machine. Certainly I would if we're doing like our vacuum chucks, our machine with the vacuum yeah. chuck, our VM3. If you're doing we'll table sized flat plate work, three axis, great. Exactly. High, high accuracy. That, that's what we need. But yeah, no. So what you're also saying about the R650s is that is the same approach that we use with our horizontal. We may have like three jobs running. Well, two running. And while those are being run and loaded, we're setting up the third one yep. on like another road device because we have four road devices and two Pearson, what is it? Horizontal pallet systems. And yeah, it's just new product, but our HPS. And on the HPS, we can run different operations and different jobs. So we can have up to, although our pallet pool has seven like flat pallets that the Haas comes with, we have four, eight, tw up to 12 stations, 12 okay. faces because we're machining on all four sides. So no, that would be a very viable strategy for an R650. You have a rotary that just stays in place. It rotates both like the 180. Yep. And then on the other side, you do some other palletized system yeah, or the second operation off that yeah, first operation. Or, or maybe you're zero opping the parts, you're doing op one and creating parts then go into a particular pallet yeah. on each face of the rotor vice and then each, they each get a, bull, a pit bull clamp and then they're done on the second right. op and come out of the rotary finished. Yes. So yes. each of those, the, I had a great conversation with one of the guys from Qmark Manufacturing, they make probe styli. And we were talking about 
methods for integrating in-process probing to call palette programs. And this is a thing that John and John have talked about it. A bunch of other folks I've talked to have talked about it. And some guys are actually doing it and some aren't. I know Grimsrow is doing it actively. And I think Saunders is currently too, Mm -hmm. where you use some kind of feeder program, some kind of master selector program. And it either probes a couple of bosses or probes a board diameter or probes some machined in feature. And then based on that information, calls the program that runs the appropriate parts on that palette. And what the guy that Qmark was telling me was that they do that, but they actually use the probing cycle to inject binary. They have a series of notched steps cut in the edge of their palette oh, and they yeah. are calling the program number. Yeah. They're not having to sync up and say, hey, if you probe this bore and the bore is 0.765, then run this program. Mm-hmm. They're actually entering the program number hmm. by touching the, the palette. It's like Braille. Yeah, very much. Okay. And that idea that one of the major hassles of tooling up a new part for me is, is developing all the fixturing. Mm-hmm. And the idea that if I want to make something and run high density on a palette, that if I'm going to run that part back to back to back to back to back, I need two identical pallets, mm-hmm. not close, identical. Mm-hmm. And if anything happens to one of them, I may have, potentially, I may have to remake both, both of, of them, them. to exactly. ensure that the next pair is identical. Yeah. For second operation work, first op, you can be off by 100 thou. Whatever, you, yeah. you can be off by whatever your stock and your cut tolerance is. Exactly. Yeah. But- the idea that when we're dealing with CNC trim fixtures on our R-series machines, I do not ever mix straight one-shot cut and revised recut, recut, recut fixtures. So whenever we're prototyping a thing and adjusting it and working in it, I've got a prototype trim fixture for a, a new Beretta pistol up on one of the CNCs right now. If I have to make any modifications to it as I go, at the end, I'm going to toss that and cut a fresh pair where mm. the two are not made where one is a clean shot of code end to end and the other is multiple partial programs run back to back. Right. I want them to be literally identical. Yeah. But the idea that if I use in-process probing well, that I can have even a, a three-axis machine run nearly continuously and only have one master palette for each family of each part that I'm running. If I design single piece flow or multi-op pallets where I've got my op one, my op two, and my op three in the same pallet so that every cycle that that pallet runs, I'm taking finished parts off, the idea that I could have four different pallets out in front of the machine with completely unrelated parts on them, provided I can fit enough standard tooling in the machine to machine all the features on all the different parts. Like I'm not going to be running pallet of aluminum parts and a pallet of titanium parts and a pallet of steel parts and a pallet of Inconel parts. I've only got 21 tool positions in a Speedio. I'm not going to be able to have enough appropriate tooling for each of those materials to change materials with every different pallet. Mm-hmm. But I could easily have four different pallets, each running aluminum 6061 or 7075 parts that use our standard aluminum tooling for a lot of their ops. And as long as I have a pallet with fresh stock ready to run, Anytime the machine ends cycle, just open the door, blow everything off, take that pallet out, put an unrelated pallet in, close the door, run the master selector program, and then the machine's off and running, munching away. 
Mm-hmm. I look at that and go, that makes so much sense because the idea, and I was actually, I was looking at the book Lean for Dummies. I brought it out in our morning meeting yesterday mm-hmm. because I actually don't like that book at all. There's a few sections of it that are helpful. Their discussion of pokey yolk and different kinds of waste are good, but they spend an enormous amount of time on sort of complex value stream mapping, which personally I find for my current company to be largely useless. Not purely useless, not theoretically uninteresting, but in terms of the practical things I can spend my time on, it's just not near the top. Yeah. However, certain kinds of mapping saying, hey, what are the big problems that have cropped up in the past 60 days and what do those problems have in common? Not so much a value stream map, but like, hey, in the geography of the overall operations of this business, where are the problems happening? Oh, they're all happening in the outside vendor quadrant. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to focus time and attention on developing more vendor processes, more touchbacks and follow-ups so that if we send a PO off to a vendor and they don't respond for a week, we don't forget about it. We make sure to follow up with them. That's been a big one for us. Like uh, our ERP software Fulcrum, when you export, a, uh, when you send a PO, what it wants to do, the software wants to insert a hyperlink. It wants to open your email client, create an email to the designated contact person for that vendor and insert a hyperlink that links back to Fulcrum and says, please see this PO. And I understand the reason they do that. There's something valuable about it being a hyperlink as opposed to an attached PDF, which is if you have to update it, you update it, the link stays valid and the most current version is immediately available. And anytime you have a thing where you're getting an initial RFQ or you might change the quantity or you might change the material, having essentially a dynamic address, a dynamic PO rather than a static PO can save you the hassle of you authorize the PO they grab the previous copy and put your order in for the wrong thing or the wrong quantity or whatever. But it doesn't come with the same kinds of very basic email-related tools that we're used to from companies like MailChimp. Yeah, You send out an email campaign, you know what they tell you? They tell you your open rate. They tell you your click-through rate. You can have multiple individual items in an email campaign and it will break them down for you and tell you who clicked on which ones how many times. Mm-hmm. And what we really want is, like for us, acknowledgement of receipt of PO is a big deal because we don't want to send it off to somebody who ended up being out of office for a week and forgot to set their out of office auto email. And so we think that they've gotten it. They're not even there. You're right. And it's time sensitive and we don't hear back and we don't know if it's in process, if it's started, if it's waiting. Like that whole idea that you don't know it's happened until you get communication back. Right. Mm -hmm. We really, really want when we send an email that has a hyperlink to a PO in it, we want our software to flag it when that link gets opened. Mm Mm-hmm. We wanted to have an an acknowledge button, like somebody opened the link, they looked at the PO and they downloaded it or they hit the acknowledge button and we know that they interacted with it. So we had that problem communicating in-house. So we obviously, we've talked a lot about using Signal and how we have different chats and 
departments and my engineer, Carlos, he's a pilot, private pilot. And he said, Hey, one thing that we need to start doing is acknowledging that we have heard it. So when you're a pilot, they may see, say like Bonanza three, five, seven, turn left and climb to flight level, whatever. And And then you have to read it back and acknowledge it, not just Wilco, you read back and you start in it or you end with your call sign or start. I can't remember. But that was one of the things because we would see like in Signal, it's, oh, I sent it. Oh, there's two checkboxes. They read it. Got seen. But they may have read it and uh, hey, Elliot. And then they look, what's that? Oh, yeah, let me help you with that. And it shows as read, but not thought about or acknowledged. So we give it a thumbs up or whatever. I like what Instagram does. I believe it says seen at. Doesn't say read. (laughs) Yeah. It says seen. Yeah. Somebody was in this window when the message was actively displayed. Whether or not they read it, on your own for that. Or like seen just now. (laughs) It's my favorite. (laughs) But yeah, that question of how onerous do you want to make the communication process? Because at a certain point, I would like you to acknowledge receipt of my messages in triplicate becomes its own form of bureaucratic waste. Mm -hmm. And then it quickly spirals into passive noncompliance. Because if it's too much work, people simply won't do it. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's dumb work. People like... So in a previous episode, we talked about the Lencioni quote, good leaders over communicate. And one of the things that I have found that I do need to improve the quantity and quality of my communication about is directly tying the impact of certain actions to certain outcomes for the company. Love it. And oftentimes attaching dollar amounts to those. Not because I'm dinging anybody's paycheck over it or trying to make somebody feel bad about it, but because I want to point out like, hey, when this mistake gets made, it costs us an average of $275 every time this happens. Yeah. If this happens five times in a week, over $1,000 has just vanished. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we had an issue where there was handling and process, processing customer returns and refunds is a thing that we're aggressively working on right now because that whole ecosystem of there are varying schools of thought on that and companies have widely ranging policies on returns, exchanges, refunds. Some companies, you have a very tight window to return for a full refund. And after that, you get a prorated refund. If the part is returned and it looks worn or damaged, you get a deeply reduced refund. Other places have a basically no holds barred, 90 days, any condition, send it back, full refund. There's everything under the sun in terms of policies in that regard. Mm-hmm. But I know several friends of mine who've done a lot of business on Amazon. And one of the things I've heard consistently from all of them is, they encounter an enormous amount of returns fraud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where somebody buys a custom belt from them, they ship it. The customer takes a $5 canvas belt from Walmart, wraps it back up in the package, sends it back to Amazon because they're doing that FBA. Mm-hmm. And Amazon said, customer ordered a belt. We received a belt back and they refund 150 bucks for this custom belt. Yeah. And then the vendor's like, whoa, 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 that's not our belt. And then you have to fight Amazon over yeah. it. And Amazon at that point isn't really motivated. No. If they're like you don't like it, the, go somewhere else. Yeah. If you don't if you don't or like our policies, feel free not to do business here. 
Yeah. That's why you don't sell on Amazon, right? For uh, one yeah, of many there's, reasons. There's a couple of reasons. The first one is Amazon in general is not a particularly firearms or self-defense friendly company right. in principle. Yep. But the other biggest thing is I've seen other companies in our space gain success on Amazon and that is the fastest way for them to skyline themselves to other companies who will shamelessly copy their products or even in some cases counterfeit their products Wow! and sell them. And sure. Amazon does a, not just a bad job, but pretty much a non-existent job of really stopping counterfeits, imitations, lookalikes, especially of low dollar items, mm -hmm. lower dollar items, things under a hundred bucks, like, and, and they don't care. Yep. And the blessing and the curse of Amazon is everything's ranked. Mm -hmm. if, if you're looking for well-performing products in a certain category because you want to copy something, Amazon tells you who to copy. Anybody can get on my website and look at everything that we make, but they have uh, absolutely no idea which units we sell the most of. Right. They don't know. Yeah. But the whole Amazon ranking system that puts the most relevant result in front of the most eyeballs does the job of curating which of these things is worth ripping off. Yeah. And that wow. happens immediately. Man, that, that, so we're planning on selling, starting to sell through Amazon, but just on the, the consumables, like top plates, not pallets because they're just too heavy, but definitely our vacuum gasket, our slotting end mills. We got a new reverse helix end mill that's going to go on the website probably by tomorrow morning. And it's one of those things where it does serve the customer because the customer can then buy on Amazon. It's FBA, therefore prime eligible. But at the same time, if we get knocked off, we get knocked off. But our vacuum gasket, it is proprietary because it's not like anything else you can buy. And we've specified exact chemical. It's not durometer. It's called compression compression something. It doesn't matter. The softness of it. Yep. And I do think that like, if people started to see that, they would say, now, hopefully we're in a tight enough niche where it just doesn't get knocked off. But yeah, I don't want someone getting crappy EDPM black gasket cord with Pearson thinking on it. it's from you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it is, you look at any, cause I bought gasket cord, uh, years ago from all the competitors just to see like, what are we doing? Like what, how can we serve this industry? We need to sell more sizes because a lot of these companies come and go. So for my idea is that we have like a card that's serialized, that's registered on our end. Okay. And we send it into Amazon. And if someone, if there's a return, we ask for that number. Or if someone calls us for tech support, they say, hey, this stuff is like falling apart. Okay. In the bag, there is a card with a serial number. What's the serial number? And if it's, I don't know about serializing consumables. I think people will throw that stuff away. I Do, would treat that. I would treat that like an iPhone box. It'd be in the trash immediately. Yeah, I, I agree. There's so so. There's a difficulty there. And what about the one Chinese competitor that just buys one and then they use that serial number? And so when yeah. we get and, and so they sell off a thousand with that one serial number, and then when we get a call, it would have to be a problem the second time because we would have a second customer with the same serial number. And would your system even flag it there or would you have to recognize it manually? Well, it would require the customer to call in and document a process with us in which part of our process would be, hey, can we get the serial number? That was the card that was in the package. Hopefully you didn't throw it away. And we would probably say, do not throw this away. And we'd probably do a hologram sticker and all that good stuff. 
genuine well, fearsome so local. I think the fastest way to to ensure that customers retain that, yeah, is to sell the silicone gasket that you sell on Amazon in a container that is itself a very clever dispenser. <laughs> yes, and that the serial number yeah. is stickered onto the outside of the dispenser. Right. So they're going to want to keep it incidentally for its utility purpose, mm-hmm. not just because oh, like warranty cards. Yeah. Anytime, no. I, like oh, sign in here and like type in all this stuff into your form. Like, dude, look, the thing I bought from you was not expensive, and if right. it breaks, I'm probably going to buy something from a competitor. I'm not going to buy from you again. Right. But if I need support, I can just look up my original order number. It's all digital. These are not the days of I bought this at a physical store, and if I lose the paper receipt, I have zero record. Everything's in the inbox. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything's on the online credit card statement. It's all there. I can always backtrack. Like sure. Just yesterday, I was posting about our little little orange manual lift that we use to move benches and things around in our shop. Mm-hmm. Fantastic! Like the best eight hundred bucks I've ever spent on that kind of equipment. Wait, awesome. what is it? What is it exactly? So it's a little manual fork jack. Okay. So not pallet jack. Not a pallet jack. It's like a little mini manual fork lift, like a scissor It'll, lift. No, it doesn't scissor. No, just check by Instagram. It's a little manual forklift and we use it to lift. It'll lift up to 440 pounds, up to about four feet high, but it's just a cart you push around. It has a very tight turning radius and we use it for moving all kinds of things. I love it because you can put a small pallet of cut bar stock on it and put it right by the CNC machine doors. And then as you work your way down the stack of parts, you just keep pumping the foot pedal and raise it up so the work is always at an ergonomically optimal height. We can use it to allow one person to move an eight-foot table or a bench or almost anything they want around, and you can just lift the thing up an inch off the floor with it and glide it around. It's excellent. That's what I'm watching right now. Yep. Okay. I did see this, and I subconsciously wanted to buy it in my mind, and I forgot that was you. So somebody DM'd me. was like, hey, man, what is that? I'm like, oh, man, I don't remember. But it took me all of five minutes. Yeah to go dig back through and find the link to the exact thing. And so I went to that video that you were just watching just today, and I posted the link to the exact product we bought there in the comments. Now, Instagram doesn't allow you to post hyperlinks in comments, which is annoying, but I understand why they don't do it because everybody would get spammed off the face of the earth if they did. But the link is right there in the comments to the exact thing that I bought, and it's excellent. We use it all the time, and we added a little clown horn to it so that when you're going through the breezeway between the two buildings for safety reasons. sure. Yeah, it's better than yelling corner. Yeah, look out, duck, run. Hey, so I was going to buy this and on, did you get it from Global Industrial? Let me look at my own link and see what it was. Yeah, while you look that up, I'll make a comment. So we need to buy these material racks for the second building that we're in. And uh, the guy down there, he's like, hey, I found these racks on Global Industrial. They're great. They're much cheaper than Cabetter ABC. And I said, have you gone to check out and put in our address? No do that and do the same thing with competitor ABC. Cause that's always been my pet peeve over the years is global charges an exorbitant markup on their freight shipments. And pretty much everything we buy from them comes freight. So I go like, for example, we just shipped a, what, like a 500, a 400 pound crate from California to Maryland, which is almost hundred percent across the country yep. for 600 bucks. And then you're telling me from Global Industrials Warehouse in Las Vegas, which is a five-hour drive, it's going to cost us two grand. Mm, no, 
Yeah. So I don't know. It's just, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious if there's another one, like yeah, whether it's a Northern tool or something like that. I got that one from materialhandlingsolutions.com. It's a mm. hydraulic foot operated stacker. Very cool. And yeah, when we were looking at buying it a couple of years ago, I was like, oh man, it's expensive. We have used that so much. It's small, it's lightweight, it's maneuverable, it's really easy to control. It has made a lot of jobs easier and a ton of jobs safer. I highly recommend it. Yeah, let me see. Uh, and even something as basic as like, oftentimes, because you can get it into such near, like, any place I can normally walk, mm -hmm. I can run that through. Yes. And so if I can turn, like in that video, I'm moving a larger bench and I've got it mounted on the fork's broadside. Uh -huh. So if I'm going to move that someplace, I need some pretty wide clearance area yep. to move that through. But a number of times we've used that little jack to get into the middle of something under the center of its gravity, like one of those benches where I couldn't have room to move it broadside and just lift it up four inches off the floor and then put moving dollies, moving skates uh -huh. under yeah. both ends. And then you can take it anywhere you want. And it's so much easier because it lifts things parallel to the floor. You can move fully loaded tables. In that video, I'm moving a table that's got like six drills and a bunch of tools on a hanging rack and a bunch of things on it. And yeah. everything's staying nice and parallel to the floor. Nothing's shaking and falling off. I love Beautiful. it. You just spent two grand of my dollars. That's oh, no. I don't think I have the big one there. I'm trying to think which model exactly I have. I've got one of the, I've either got the 200-9 or the 200-12. What's the difference? Fork length. I'm not finding it, but I'll have to look later. The one that I have is, the price has gone up a little bit. It's like 930 or 950 bucks now. Got it. Okay. But highly recommend. Was there an electric version? I don't know. I was not interested in an electric version. Okay. The I was kind of default. That we bought had yep. several much older, larger, heavier, and much more thrashed versions of this kind of thing that they were going to be selling, auctioning off when they moved out of the building. Mm -hmm. And I decided not to buy either of the ones that they had and just get a fresh new unit. Why? Were ourselves. they old? They were old and beat up and just like, yeah, they'd like tack welded stuff onto them and they'd cracked them and repaired them. And it, I just didn't want any part of those. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. But- for things that can be manual, there's very little upside to the added weight and complexity and cost of going electric for a thing that has so much mechanical advantage. If I can lift 440 pounds mm -hmm. with a gentle repeated pressure on a foot switch, just crank it up, crank it up, crank it up, and I'm up, I don't want to have to, like, the one time I really need it, it's going to be dead. Yeah. And if it's manual, I can park it anywhere. It's never going to catch on fire. It's not going to burn my building down. I don't have to charge it. It's not going to go halfway through a job. It just, it's just wheels and a lift. Yeah, right. Man, I'm so tempted. I'm tempted to tell a story, which I'm just going to go for it because my employees are going to hear this. But we have these material, like in lean, you always want to bring the material up to waist level. You don't want to be bending over, reaching up. You want a nice, easy simple, safe working height and waist level is perfect. So I looked at these scissor lifts that are electric, hydraulic, but they're electrically powered. Or you could sit there and pump the foot pedal probably like 20, 30 times. And I was ready to spend the two or three grand on the electric version. And then 
I think what happened was they either like someone scrapped parts or something. It irritated me. It made me mad. I think they didn't maintain the batteries on one of our scissor lifts. And so Carlos had to order like six, six volt batteries, the big golf cart batteries. And I was just so mad. <laughs> like I internally said, well, those guys don't get an electric lift as much as I want to be a benevolent boss. They failed to maintain this other thing. Ultimately, it still falls on me because the book does stop with me, but I didn't put a good enough maintenance schedule together. We didn't put a process, even if there now there is. And I still see that like, hey, when was the last time the forklift got charged? Because I hopped on it and it was at 30%. And you don't want it with these types of batteries to go that low. So yeah. Yeah. But it, that was one of those things. Like I, I always want to opt to the thing that will give the easiest effort. But yeah. it's like what you said, $600 versus like two or three grand. That's a tough sell right there. Yeah. If we were using it every single day and the electric version had higher lift capacity. Sure. There are certainly viable reasons for choosing one over the other. And it's not the case. All well, the manual version is a great value, but the electric version is just a ripoff. It's like, well, no, the use cases, if they're different use cases, could totally justify one or the other. We're looking Perfect. right now at getting a crown electric stand-up forklift mm -hmm. and getting rid of our older Datsun. It's a classic. It's a 1979 Datsun. Datsun. Nice. But it's a liquid propane fork truck. And if we run it inside for any period of time, it stinks the whole place up. Yeah. And when the weather's 70 degrees outside, we just open the bay doors and it's fine. But in mm -hmm. the winter and in the summer, not it's not a viable solution to do yeah. that. And in that case, well, yeah, I want something that's quiet. I want something that's not smelly, that's not going to pollute the air that we're breathing the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. And if I can go from a ride on to a stand-up that has a tighter turning radius and a smaller aisle requirement, mm -hmm. that's a win. Yeah. And yeah, we had I mean, one I, of those, a Crown walk-behind. We actually tested out two different electric walk-behinds, one from Crown and one from Raymond. Okay. And I hated them. The walk-behind. Oh, we got rid of it. Yeah, yeah. The you can you can easily run over your foot. It is a actually I got it at a super great steal because there's a guy that had no feet. <laughs> no. He was a forklift repair guy. And Office Depot or Office Max had one of these crown walk behind electric lifts in every single one of their stores across America. And he would take he went on road trips to hit up every single I'm pretty sure it was Office Max every office max across the country to buy these up. And he would drive from LA to all the way to Phoenix. And he'd go a little further, New Mexico, then Texas. And he'd come back with five or six on a big trailer. And then he would refurbish them. And it was already great. They looked amazing. They were lightly used because I do think it triggered some type of accident or lawsuit or something like that. And they said, man, who chose this? Who sourced this product? Get rid of it. I had it, but then I, after a few years, I got it when it was just me. It was just sole prop. I had zero employees and it was fine. It was cheap. If I remember correctly, it was far cheaper than a true forklift. And I didn't need to be loading thousands and thousands of pounds. I just need 200 pounds of pallet material off the truck. But yeah, some of the guys just, just it just was not, it's not intuitive. It's just weird. It's, it's no good throttle control. There is a throttle control, but the first amount of voltage, it spikes to get it going. And so it was jerky. And, so, and yeah. then meanwhile, I traded actually a car and some cash for my dad's 
Clark forklift, the 1976 Clark forklift, mm. which we still have, and that's at our second location. But last year, I bought a used 2015 Toyota electric, and I love it. I love all things that are electric, but the guys love it because it doesn't stink up the whole shop. This is a non-negotiable when we're smelling propane. They say, oh, well, propane isn't as bad. As bad as what? Smoking? It's still bad. You don't yeah, want it's that. it's not good. No. It's not good. So for me, like the two things that really stood out to me, I liked of the walk-behinds we tried, we got them both as demos because the companies would lend them to us for a week and a half to mm-hmm. run around and see what we liked. The Raymond, the power steering was only functional when the unit was moving forward or back. Mm-hmm. So if you were at a standstill and you needed to start a turn, you had no power steering, wow. which was okay. miserable. Like that was a, when I ran it the first day, I'm like, nope, deal ender. Uh-uh, not yeah. doing this. And the crown was much better with much more intuitive controls. But the reality that if the unit starts to run in a way you don't expect, especially if it's back toward you, that the change in the position of the overall unit raises or lowers the yoke mm-hmm. and can change how your fingers impact the buttons. Mm. Like if the yoke suddenly rises in your hands, you can hit the throttle in a way you don't intend. Right. Like that, I looked at and like, you know what? I don't like this. Yeah. I don't like the basic limitations of how this interface works yeah. and how I'm having to move the controls around in space as I trigger things on them with my fingers. That's not great. And wildly, you're so much further away from the forks that it's way harder to see your work. Right. Like, yeah. It, wow. I never it, thought about that. It, yeah, it is compact when it's parked and the yoke yeah. is upright. But when you're standing behind it with the yoke layered back, right. you're like six feet further away from the work sure. than you would be and you're lower. So yeah. on our Datsun, you are much closer to the work and you're higher up and you can see over and see the front of your forks much more easily. Mm-hmm. We're behind these crowns. I'm like, I feel like I'm like 10 feet away from the front of the forks. I can't see over anything. I'm like looking around to the side and I'm starting and then I'm swinging the yoke over to the side, looking around the unit. I don't like yeah. any of this. So what are you going to go with? We're looking at a crown electric standup. And the, the main things I like, smaller turning radius, smaller aisle requirement, and a foot pressure safety switch. A dead man switch. So, so you to have clarify, to be standing on it, right? So to clarify, it's a ride on, but you stand. It's a standing yeah. ride on, yep. and and you're facing sideways, and you, yes. you steer. Yeah, got it. Mm-hmm. Yep. That seems like a good compromise that gives us, first of all, it gives you a cage. It gives you a support structure over the operator for safety. Mm-hmm. That's important to me. Yep. It's not the end all be all, but a walk behind. You're just out there in the breeze, yeah. and if you manage to knock over a pallet rack while you're driving alongside it, mm-hmm. you have nothing. Yeah. Right. But the ability to be closer to the work, to be higher up, and have the machine automatically stop if you step out of it for any reason. Mm-hmm. I love everything about that. Yep. The downside is new ones had like a six to eight month lead time. So we're yep. currently shopping for a used one. There you go. That's probably a better financial choice, anyways. If you can get like good batteries, that was the thing. So, yeah. Hey, I have, I don't know if I shared this on the podcast before, but we're almost wrapping completion of our assembly and fulfillment room. Okay. One of the things was fire sprinklers, and I have a fire inspection in about 10 or 15 minutes. So I got to wrap up okay. and, and greet them with a smile at the front door. Well, good luck with that. Give them a glass of champagne. Tell them how happy you are to see them. <laughs> Will do. 
And I look forward to talking to you next week. Next week, okay. I want to talk a little bit about our returns process and how we're integrating it with our shipping and receiving center with Love cameras it. and all kinds of fun doodads and things. Love it. Uh, but we'll talk yeah. then. Excited. Have a great night, Jay. Thank you. You too, Andrew. See ya.